Hi, I'm Bosha Tafrata, and you're listening to Embrace with the Margin podcast, a space where I talk to researchers, scholars, and practitioners about the ideas that mobilize their work. Some of my research interests are on the production of socio-spatial inequalities, the politics of space, and practices of inclusion and exclusion. Today's guest is Nipish Palat Narainen, a research fellow at the Laboratory for Social Geography at the University of Florence in Italy. In his research, he focuses on Southern theory, planning systems, and the production of knowledge hegemonies through informal practices, particularly food vending, with case studies on India and Sri Lanka. Among his recently published academic papers, Dislocating Urban Theory, Learning with Food Vending Practices in Colombo and Delhi, a paper published in Antipode Journal in 2021, Southern Theory Without a North, City Conceptualization as the Theoretical Metropolis, published at the Annals of the American Association of Geographers in 2021, and others. First of all, I'd like to start by saying how much I enjoyed reading your papers and blog posts. So many insights on dislocating urban theory, knowledge, hegemony, and thinking within informality instead of confining it within the informal-formal debate. As a first question, I'd like to start with asking... How did you come to study the topic of the production of knowledge hegemony through informal practices and why food vending in particular? What were the political and personal motivations behind it? Thank you. Thank you, Busha. It's really uh, nice to know that you like the people and the blog posts. Uh, so uh, my, the, the start, how I started studying informality and knowledge hegemony, the knowledge hegemony came later. Informality was with what I started. Uh, I was working in Delhi at that point in time before my PhD with the social enterprise. I'm an architect urban design by training. So I was working as an architect slash urban designer in the so-called informal settlements. So at some point during the work, I realized that what I was doing is the classic uh, architect as the god. Well, I go to the settlements and tell them what to do and what is wrong with their settlements. And I realized it's, it's, not just a moral question, but technically there is something clearly wrong because what I see as, for example, a column not built in a proper way, people have been building that and has stayed for last 50 years. I'm not saying it's a good thing technically, but if it has stayed, it costs, it's, it kind of saves significant amount of money. I have never done any tests on columns of how the strength, it has been told to me by someone and I just believed it. So similarly for them, the mason has told them that it is how it works and the people building that way has uh, believed it. So this is where I started doubting the practice and and at that time I had a very good group of friends and comrades uh, in Delhi with whom I discussed a lot and I decided to do a PhD to explore this particular notion of informal settlements and I twisted it the way around of saying learning from informal settlements. It was very completely not what I do now. <laughs> so it was very paternalistic kind of an approach. We're like, ah, they're doing something nice. We can learn from them. But we still, as, as me who is learning from them, is still uh, you know, at a higher position. So that was a, a larger premise with which I started the PhD. Of course, once you start the PhD, things changed. The first question which I was confronted to was what is informality or informal settlements. So the more I dwelled into what is informality, I realized that informal settlement is absolutely a term which, which has no meaning unless you, you specifically say, I will call this settlement an informal settlement. Why would I call it? No, I just, just feel like calling it, so I will call it. Then it works. But if you start to define what is informality, then informal settlement does not work very well. So it's a, this is where I, I broke it down to informal practices. So the idea was that 
there is the state presence is completely important in this conceptualizing. And there are multiple ways of looking at informality, but this has helped me a lot. Is to see informality as a practice which is not registered by the state. So we all on our day-to-day -day lives we do a lot of practices, some of which are registered, some of which are not registered. So all the, that which are not registered are informal, and all those are registered are formal. And then registered with the state. And then there are two problematics to it. The first is do we study all the practices which are not registered as informal? So just to give you an example, building practices, for example, which I started my PhD, which are not registered by the state, of course, falls under informal practice and is studied as informal. On the other hand, if you look at informal vending, for example, of e-bikes, basically e-bikes are it's not registered by the state. It's basically informal vending with all these app-based technology and, and what we call gig economy, platform economy. Those things are never studied as informal because it has a shiny outside to it. Now, uh, only one case I remember was in Amsterdam where people were quite against the sharing of uh, bike sharing. No, should not be called bike sharing. The bike app-based bike rental system and the state did not have any means to remove them. And they suddenly realized, oh, actually they are vending on the street without a permission which is required as per Dutch law. I don't know if it was Dutch law or Amsterdam municipal law, and they removed it legally. So uh, the point is uh, that what is studied is as informality is not a totality of informality. There is a politics behind what we study as informality. And there is a lot of informal practices which are not studied as, as informal practices. So this is where uh, the knowledge hegemony part of it came in. For me, informality is not, it's not a thing in itself, right? It's a designation which we give for a specific purpose. So it's the purpose which is of interest to me. So for example, if then you wrote to me asking if we can have this talk, it was not a letter, it was not a formal request through the institutions, it was an informal request. But we are not going to label it informal because no one is studying it. You know? mm -hmm. so, so in the city, there are many practices which the registration of which with the state becomes quite important. Another lay example is if you're friends with someone and uh, you say, okay, we are very good friends and we are going to remain friends forever. So let's register our friendship with the state. That person will run away thinking that you are mad. But if you are in love with someone and you say the same thing, so let's register our love with the state, it's marriage, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an important step in that particular relationship what is considered informal and what has to stay informal and what is considered formal and what has to stay formal is quite a, a political notion because it's a categorization like any other categorization. How do you categorize developed countries versus underdeveloped or developing countries? There is no way you can do that categorization unless you devise, you have a specific political model or gender categorization. Mm -hmm. It starts with the, the, the categorization of sex and then it moves to gender categorization and then everything falls apart. So you can't do that categorization. Of course, it makes sense only from a very specific perspective. To me, informality is that. It's a very specific perspective. So when it started in the 1970s uh, with Kate Hart's work, there was a specific purpose of saying that, ah, you know what, look, this uh, economy that which you are studying it feels that the, the economic output is low because you're just looking at formal data. There's a lot of economic activity which is going on, which is not registered with the banks, which is not registered uh, with the tax uh, authorities or the classic 
data points of, of, of economic study, it misses those points, so you have to look at this. So in that sense, the category of informality made sense. So now, when I started my PhD, one of my, my, my concerns, that's where also knowledge hegemony comes in, was the notion that informality is a, is a, is a term which we, we as academics use to describe something. So it's not a thing in itself. So many times when you read something, it feels like it's a thing in itself. It's a very definitive thing in itself, which we need to somehow overcome or, or do something with it or understand it. Well, my point was like, no, it's, it's like a category. I call it apple and orange. It's an orange for me, I mean, not for you. But if I am more powerful, of course, you have to accept that it's an orange. Connecting this to what you mentioned in the beginning about what is considered as informal, especially compared to the West, and how when one mentions informal in the academic or policy discourse, it is usually to point towards a set of practices in the global South. Do you think othering informality is another example of how Eurocentric theory alienates all practices that are local and differ from the sets of Western notions of preconceived modern metropolis and what needs to be registered and what needs to be formal and legalized? Yes, I would say so. There's a, 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 a very interesting recent paper. It's a short paper by Jaffe and Costa. Uh, in general, the Western society, as well as academics based out of the West, believe what their government tells them. That is, how cities are run in the West are completely formal. And if informality exists, it is a thing of the past, A, or it is a thing where it's localized, uh, some migrant community or migrant neighborhoods or poor neighborhood. So even within the West, this othering has, uh, like for informality to be studied as informality, this othering has to be there because we are modern and the other is not modern, thus informal. And this, this starts from very early on, like most of the data which we have from the, the, the colonial records they show this very well because, of course, this is also one of the things which why I look at food because food describes it very well. For example, when you when you say Indian food, Indian food is spicy. Okay, mm -hmm. Indian food is spicy, but it's not spicy for someone who probably comes from I don't know. If you come from Sri Lanka, the the, the amount of chili which is put in at put in at least the singular version of the uh, the Sri Lankan cuisine is much higher than the Indian version. So if if the colonizer was a Sri Lankan Sinhala guy coming to, to colonize India, they would have never called the Indian food spicy. So it was precisely because you, you were seeing it from a, a certain position. So that was how all the practices of the colonizers were registered as, as something which is modern and progressive, while the same uh, practices elsewhere was othered as not good. This othering starts very early on in, in, in the colonial encounter and continues even till today. Uh, the, the, the class and caste distinctions in India, Sri Lanka, most of the two countries which I study, you can see this othering, it's always the practices of the other is always uh, something which is looked down upon. Another thing that I am curious about is where you situate your knowledge within the northern knowledge and southern knowledge dichotomy and what do you consider as northern or southern knowledge? In your paper, Southern Theory Without a North, City Conceptualization as the Theoretical Metropolis, you wrote about the difference between what is considered as the knowledge of the periphery and the knowledge of the metropolis. Perhaps you can elaborate a bit on this. The problem with 
with with the with, with the with the network of knowledge production is that of course the there is larger economic resources in the universities in the west so uh, they could hire much more number of people they could do much more research and they could do research elsewhere than their own country the the thing which i was pointing out or which was bothering me from the very beginning of when i was writing this paper is that what is being studied about like if if you look at uh, i don't want to name universities but uh, quite a few of, number of universities where i have been based it's it's a very good academic culture where uh, we study both where we are not the same person of course but there is a mix of people who study the city or the location where or the country where you are and also a lot of diverse set of people who study processes and events and, and, and things which are happening outside of that particular context so the university becomes kind of a very very nice academic context where different contexts come together and, and and interact with each other but if you just look below that 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 nicety of of uh, of ideas coming together what is being studied within the country and what is studied outside the country a completely like uh, you know the, the the there are processes which exist outside the country but will never be studied inside it always gets associated like it's the same with informality why is it like in in general urban theory now the trend is that oh we have not studied enough of the south so we should study south mm-hmm. yeah fine something not studied you study but if you look at informality specifically as a topic it's immensely overstudied in the south and not studied in the north mm-hmm. yeah so you know what gets studied where is important and and other scholars have also talked about disciplinary boundaries in the sense of of who becomes a sociologist as opposed to who become an anthropologist for example so mm-hmm. if you study a certain cultures there are higher chances of you getting hired in an anthropology department in the west specifically in the west because if if you go for example before uh my current position i was in the, the department of sociology in in university of colombo and you can see like a, a fair amount number of people had done their phd in anthropology because of course they were studying uh, sri lankan society so the yeah. chances of them getting accepted to a phd program in anthropology is much higher than them getting accepted in the sociology program you know so, but yeah. this distinction does not exist in colombo because for them yeah of course there are different uh, some disciplinary differences but what matters is what you are doing and it's a social science and it, it binds them together within the sociology department yes you claim to be sociologist and an anthropologist but you you are in the same department and when when you're hiring someone you don't look specifically for sociologist or specifically for anthropology and this this happens in in, in other districts for example urban studies and, and development studies if a lot of development studies looks at development aid and stuff right uh if you leave that literature out but uh, there are a lot of good work happening in development studies which are looking at cities elsewhere if you study a city in in europe it is urban studies if you study a city outside europe specifically in uh, the non what we would call northwest it's development studies yeah it's a right? case of development yeah Yeah. Yes, because because it is required to maintain the lie that the categorization of developed, developing, and underdeveloped exists. Because if you study development studies in in uh, I don't know in Europe, then probably we are not developed. Like uh, why do we need development? <laughs> yeah. We are developed. Done. Uh, you know, move to the developing and underdeveloped world. <laughs> yes. 
So that notion exists and, and that require, because generally if, for example, if I have to study, uh, if I have to publish a paper in urban studies and I use the example which I gave you of, you know, friendship and marriage and what gets registered and use this interpersonal to build up a case on informality, it will probably not get published in an urban studies journal. You know? yeah. Be yeah. Because it's not a question of concern which generally the urban studies community look at. So there is also a screening of, of, uh, of, of, um, uh, of knowledge production, which I mean, mm -hmm. I mean they are, they, I'm not saying they're bad or that they, they have certain disciplinary background or certain disciplinary boundaries under which they publish. But uh, these boundaries which are drawn actually reinforces a lot of lies and, and stories which the Western governments tell. And, and I found this very powerful because when we talk about knowledge structure, we, are, we always talk about academics as independent thinkers and you know, radical, we may be independent radical, but we are embedded in a society and a lot of us have biases about like, you know, to, to a less or more degree, the same biases which exist in the society. So a lot of what we do is also governed by what the government tells us. That distinction exists and it, it comes in, in the way we study informality and, mm -hmm. and production of knowledge as well. Do you think we can engage a broader audience in this discussion? Because this is bigger than an academic debate. Well, yes, it's bigger than an academic debate for sure. But how do you engage with the broader audience who are not part of academia is a question which is slightly difficult because one of the things with academia is it's, it's a world in itself, right? And there is a specific set of languages which we use. So there is a specific set of uh, argumentative mode which we use, which not is not I won't say universal, but is generally understood. So someone writing a paper in Berlin, if it's in the language which is understood by someone in India, they will largely understand the, the content of it. Right? But the, the terms which we use outside the academia are not the same as inside. So when we say, okay, the bodies are gendered, for example, it's a simple concept. And when we say people and body, you know, it means two different things to, to, to academics. But when we go and talk in general, broader outside academia, these terms are in the real language, which means like, most other words in real language are very diverse set of things. And it would be very difficult to have a consensus on, on what it really means. Yes, and it's a very elitist language as well. Yes, 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 definitely. The replies of your interviewees also highlighted this. When you asked one of them about informality, he replied with, what is there to study on informality? Yeah. Because he was completely perplexed. He was like, what is the point? <laughs> yeah. And then... In the end, he realized because he compared it to his his uh, son was in school, like primary school, and of course, you know, used to write essays on different things. And you're like, ah, okay, so you have to it's like yeah. a school assignment which you have to do for the university. So you know, I had to partially agree because in partial essence, it's like that when you write a paper, it's not for the broader. It's like academic writing for other academics. A lot of academic discussions nowadays are addressing citational exclusion and the importance of mobilizing knowledge produced in the Global South. They say cite more Global South material and knowledge. Do you see this as part of the process of dislocating urban theory or 
Does it lead to disregarding the actual systemic issues related to research, including the ways in which it is conducted, its history in imperialism, colonial exploration and epistemic extractivism? And perhaps a more interesting question would be, who does the university consider as Global South scholar and Global North scholar? The, the thing is, citational politics is an important thing to be, to be looked at to begin with. But then it's, it's neither enough nor, how do you say, it's, it's not the central part of the, the thing. There is, of course, a citational politics. But then what do you mean by citing the global south? Like if, if I tell you that when you write an article, cite some uh, paper which came out from global south, what would you consider me as? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not in Global South, but uh, the paper which we were talking about before, that was written when I was in the Global South. So have I suddenly became transformed myself from Global North to Global South? What do you mean by an academic from Global North and South? Yeah. That is one thing. Second thing, when you say introduce diversity, it also brings in categories, right? Like, ah, okay, so what are the categories you're going to create? So if you say scholars, North scholars, Global South scholars, where do the scholars who are in the global north but study global south or where are the scholars who studied in like their entire formation is in global so for example me i did un my master until my master's everything in india and then i did my phd abroad where do you count me when i am in a global north institute yeah. as opposed to someone else who has even done their bachelor's in 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 the west so they are completely in terms of education, they got the same education as a Global North scholar. So it, it's a complex question. And whom do you call? How do you know? Because if you have to say, ah, okay, women don't get uh, cited enough. Okay, so you need to cite more women. So what? how do you know that someone is a man or a woman? And then, of course, the, the trans category comes. Yeah. Ah, okay, then, then of course, it's always heteronormative uh, citation practices. Mm -hmm. Okay, then I should cite uh, non-hetero scholars. How do I know? There is no way to know. I will only know the people whom yeah. I have met or like interacted with at a closer level about these things. So it's not possible to, to scale this up. At, uh, uh, like I, I find it taking it beyond the, 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 the personal realm of exploration, making it like a, a public tech exercise just mm -hmm. leads it to oh we don't have enough people of color put them in all of them are from elite universities in the united yeah. states but still the last thing which which i also wanted to point with the citational practices is the notion of research question whom you cite is very much dependent on what kind of work do they do you know like of course there is a, a missing of citation like okay someone from an elite university tends to come up on your search list much more so you end up citing that particular person but if a similar work is being done by someone from the global south it's easy to cite the the, the problem with that is that i assume that my research questions or my concerns are the same everywhere which is not true so the if i have to cite a for example, uh, a global South scholar studied and established and working in global South, the kind of things which this person would be working would be very different from the kind of things which I am working. That is where the collaboration comes because you cannot just cite and, and move away. Mm -hmm.
Thank you for highlighting this because I'm always asking myself this question, what is a Global South scholar? And academics like Anania Roy, whose name is on every paper on informality and her work is very prominent, but they're also Global North scholars who got their education in the West and who continued their work in the West. Her work is really, really interesting and I, mean, I, I, I draw a lot from her work, but she has done her bachelor's in US her postgraduate studies in US, a PhD in US, and she has always been a professor there. So for me, she is a US scholar. Epistemically, she's located in the circuits of knowledge production of the North. Mm -hmm. She critiques the North. Yes, of course, she critiques the North. I'm not saying she, she, she has a Northern bias or anything, but she critiques the North by standing within the North. So if you look at a, a lot of Southern theory, if you go to Colombo, not many critiques exist on uh, the Western ways of, of theorizing. This also leads to the question of why is it that the, the people, uh, academics, strictly talking about the academic world, the academics in the global south who are more affected by the theories from the north are not critiquing it. Are they saying, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it does not fit, just, just, just either adapt or leave it, while academics who are critiquing the same thing based out of global north are trying to improve it because they are based out of global norm. So when the, the, the thing is, Ananya Roy's critique of, of knowledge production, of post-colonial practice, comes because it does not exist in the Western academia the way she wants it to be. Mm -hmm. While a, a similar person or a similar position level of, of, of uh, in terms of academic achievement, a person from, say, Colombo, will not say that because for this, for, for this particular person, the, the West is alien, is outside. Going back to your previous point of positionality is also important because a, a lot of positionality discussion goes to identity creation. Like, you know, you, you can, like, for example, if I have to, to, to market myself, I can say, oh, I'm a scholar from the global sub, which is true. I am a non-white, whichever box you want to put it, brown male. Again, a true statement. I am from the lower caste, true statement, oppressed for ages, true statement. My dad was the only earning member of the family and his salary was quite low. So we, I, I did not have the, the luxury of a lot of money. Again, a true statement. Uh, uh, the, the first point, I'm from the Global South, yes, but I did my PhD in the Global North Institute. So when I write why it gets published in what we now call international journal because basically it's, it's the western it, it embedded in the western uh, knowledge production circuit mm -hmm. why it gets published is because i am embedded i'm writing in a manner which realizes the concerns of the western knowledge production my last question is while you continue to work on informal practices and southern urbanisms and theory what would you consider as a vital insight that you've gained through conducting participatory research on urban informalities and that continue to shape your thinking? And what have you unlearned in this trajectory? When, when you study architecture, the, the, the unlearning part is fairly simple. The, the learning part was much more difficult. And I would say that one of the things which is at the top of my head, uh, there are multiple things at the top of my head now is the, the, the formation of categories. Because when I started my PhD, my, the, the first task was, how would you define informality? So I, for me, informality was a given. Like, okay, I'm studying informality. 
there there are problems in the in the way informality has been defined but i have to redefine the informality and, and look at or problematize it that was the first half of my my phd but then with participatory observation and participant observation and interacting with uh, with people you realize this is your category this is mm-hmm. you are in the sense it's, it's a very academic category even in the like i was studying delhi at that point of time in in the planning documents the informality or informal settlement as a word does not exist mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so you know the, the entire like there's so much work on urban informality in, in delhi that uh, during one of the conferences uh, a very senior professor told me that ah, you should you should look at some smaller cities or something else because there's too much work on informality in delhi mm-hmm. which is true i mean it was more like a, a suggestion well so much work exists but that word itself is not part of the planning documents in delhi mm-hmm. it's not part of the people who who practice according to at least the academic category who practice informality and this like it, it keeps evolving i had this during my phd keyboard but before pandemic uh, hit in in february i was doing my field work and it again came back to me where i was very closely interacting with a, 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 a vendor and then i had to explain to him what i was doing and Mm-hmm. I, i did not know how to say informality i'm not saying a literal translation of informality but like i, I did not know how to explain what informality means mm-hmm. and which is true because from his position informality as a category is completely irrelevant thank you nipish for um, no, this chat thank you thank you bushra i appreciate our conversation a lot no thank you for the invitation it was really interesting and really nice to talk to you it, it structures my own thoughts <laughs> It structures mine as well. Thank you for listening. You can write to me on Instagram and Twitter or at bushra@impraisethemargin.com. At Stay tuned and see you next time.